Why can't we see God? Evolutionists, skeptics, agnostics have said, where is this God you people talk about? Most people with this world's education, and I include among them financiers, successful businessmen, people who are involved in Wall Street and the blue chip stocks and the big industries, they have no time for God. Hard-nosed businessmen who are in a dog-eat-dog competition to make ends meet, and not only that, but to get rich in this world, who basically have degrees from large universities, who have had a tremendous education saturated with evolutionary concepts, whether you're talking about your basic college-grade English textbook or a mathematics textbook. They all deal with the concept of no God. Every time I look at a beautiful nature series on television, and who cannot stop when you see a Bengal tiger walking along on the TV and you stop and you watch it, or migratory waterfowl or little penguins in Antarctica, the narrator is always talking about how these creatures have adapted to survive, and all of this survival of the fittest, like Darwin really knew what he was talking about. And they show you the Galapagos tortoise, or some of these tremendous creatures we look at, and they're so interesting, the great whales of the... Pacific Ocean, who can dive a couple of miles deep and stay down there for several hours without breathing, and yet they're an air-breathing, warm-blooded mammal. And always the narrator is talking about how they evolved. Several times on a television program, I've asked Mrs. Housewife America, how do you deal with your kids who all week long are subjected to the scientific notions of biology and various of the physical sciences like astronomy and geology and so on, all the various aspects of those studies of the physical sciences, and it's all shot through with evolution. They read in the science writings of some of the newspapers, the science writers have discovered some new bone in the Olduvai Gorge about Xenjanthropus africanus, so they discovered the kneecap of an elephant somewhere in Egypt, they think, is the skull of a woman. But they are dating these bones, whether in Texas or in Mexico, in the millions of years. Now, we read in the Bible about how Adam and Eve were created, and they walked around in the Garden of Eden some 6,000 years ago. How does a kid age 13 or 16 or 19 in school deal with the conflict? Throughout all of his education, in the newspapers, all the magazines, whether you're talking about Dr. Carl Sagan and the interviews of some of the leading astronomers and all of the people being interviewed about the Hubble Space Telescope up there now and the new things they're beginning to learn about the universe and the idea of the Big Bang Theory, that all of the bodies that we see out there are rapidly moving away from a central core of a primeval explosion where one gigantic atom, if you can imagine that, that's mind-boggling, sometime or another exploded, and that our entire universe is the result of that Big Bang, that super explosion, billions of aeons ago. How do they deal with a conflict? How do you drag them off and suddenly go to meet and close, and they hear the Bible teacher talking about Samson and Delilah with her scissors, Daniel and the lion's den, the lions are all sort of lockjawed, they're kind of grunting or growling, but they don't leap on Daniel, walking around on coals of fire in the fiery furnace, Noah and the ark, David and Goliath, and by the way, Jesus, oh yeah. How do the kids deal with that? People ask, if there is a God, how come I can't see him? It would be so easy for him to show himself. And wouldn't it be wonderful, we might muse, if every day at 12 noon, sun or shine, all around this earth, wherever the world rolls and 12 o'clock comes up, with a crash that sounds like 
17 Vesuviuses and Mount Helens and all the rest of them exploding with an earth-shattering roar that nearly deafens you. The heavens departed the scroll, a super-blinding light, ten times more brilliant than our sun, appears, and a giant voice thunders down there to all of startled humankind, I am God. What if that happened every day at 12 noon? How would you feel? What if, on the other hand, constantly God were doing what everybody seems to want him to do? Let me explain. One evolutionist said, there is no God worthy of my homage in the entirety of the universe so long as there are things like AIDS and all these horrible diseases, endemic diseases, poverty, squalor, and sickness, accidents, death, suffering. He looked and he cataloged all the human suffering in the world from terrorists, machine-gunning helpless children in the airports in Vienna and Rome to hundreds of millions of people who have died of malnutrition, starvation, and disease of every kind. Things like Siamese twins or the Down syndrome or every disease that afflicts more than 92 million Americans with some registered form of chronic disease. Child mortality, where the expectancy in the Philippines is that practically every other baby dies, and in some places like Java and India, Ceylon, the infant mortality rate is astronomical. And we see these little children whose bodies are like swollen melons with little black sticks for legs dying in the sub-Sahara of starvation. He said, so long as there is all this human suffering, there is no God in the universe worthy of my homage. What he is saying is that God can prevent this. And my answer is, yes, God can prevent it. God can prevent a horrible tragedy like a child wandering into the street and getting run over in some quiet community in Tyler, Texas, and the way he can prevent that is by suddenly appearing and saying to that housewife, where's your baby? She says, oh, well, I'm just washing dishes. I don't know. She was right there a moment ago. He can prevent emphysema and lung cancer by appearing suddenly when a man is reaching for a pack of cigarettes and grabbing him by the arm and saying, hold it, this is God. You're not going to smoke that cigarette. What would be the reaction of the fellow who is trying to reach for the cigarette? What would be his reaction? Let's ask this question and answer it from what the Bible says. Talking about Moses in the book of Hebrews briefly, who chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, verse 25, rather than the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had recompense for respect under the recompense of reward, and how he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Paul talked about the invisible God. We read of how God is invisible. Jesus said in John the third chapter, John the first chapter, I'll turn to that, and also in the fifth chapter, that he is invisible. Let's take a look at John 1 for a moment, and in verse 18. Now, no matter what some televangelist says about some 36-foot-tall God, or somebody says they saw God the Father, no matter what the Mormon plates say about the guy lying on his back that came out of a trance and saw this being who turned to the other being and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. No matter the claims of anybody, this is what Christ says in the Word of God. And he says... 
No man has ever seen him at any time. Verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Look at John 5 and verse 37. Jesus Christ himself is talking. John 5 and verse 37. And the Father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. No man has ever seen God the Father, nor heard his voice. Yet there are cases in the Bible of allegedly the person called God, and the word may be Elohim, it may be one of the other names or titles used for the divine family in the Bible, especially in the book of Daniel, where it talks about the Holy of Days, or the Ancient of Days, I should say, and how he is brought to another person on a throne, obviously talking about Christ and the Father, and the voices that are given to these prophets and patriarchs are inevitably the voices of an archangel or an angelic messenger, but never the voice of God the Father himself. God didn't always hide himself from man. Are we to believe Genesis, the first chapter? Do you believe this? Of course, I could preach about ten sermons on the subject of evolution, and that is my purpose today. But let's get right to the 26th verse. And God said, and the word for God in Genesis 1 and verse 1, and in this verse as well, is Elohim. You'll notice the I am on the end of that. That is merely a transliteration into English of the Hebrew, and the pronunciation in Hebrew is Elohim. Eloah, or El being the singular. Elohim said, and Elohim means more than one, which is why it says here in the Bible, let us make man in our image. Now, God was not an absent-minded professor that was talking to himself. There is more than one being here talking to another being, and those two beings make up the Godhead or the divine family. Let us make man in our image, who will look like both of us. That's what your Bible says. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, and so on. Man was made. Eve was taken from the rib of man. We read of that very first moment in the garden of how God sat there, curious about Adam naming the animals. And in the third chapter, it says, verse 3, or 1, I should say, chapter 3, verse 1, now the nakash was more subtle than any nephesh of the field. English, serpent, and creature. But the Hebrew word nakash does not mean garter snake. It doesn't mean a blue racer wound around one branch of an apple tree, but an upright serpentine-looking creature who may very well have looked like one of the seraphs that are mentioned in the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, because Satan the devil, whose original name was Lucifer, is called one of the cherubs that covereth, or who actually originally was right at God's throne. So this magnificent but maybe magnetic evil-looking creature that appeared to Eve may well have looked more like a dragon with wings and a huge serpentine body and may have been standing upright than merely a little garter snake wrapped around an apple tree. And there are plenty of clues about that, and of course I've written about it including my booklet, Satan's Greatest Deception, that investigates the meaning of the word nakash and what this really was that Eve saw. Eve apparently was not any more astounded than a child growing up in modern 20th century America with a television set. When I was a kid, or I was 17, and I would run over to my parents' house to look at television, it was a phenomenon. 
I thought, how did that man get in the box? Well, I didn't think of it quite that simply, but I thought, I'm aware of radio, but how do they communicate through the air a picture? I wanted to find out how that is done. How is it scrambled into the airwaves and put out here in just plain air and picked up by a piece of antenna and then unscrambled and put before me in a box? It was a phenomenon to see television. Our tube was about that big, black and white. Huge big set, almost as big as the pulpit, little black and white tube about that big. My wife and I, when we were very first married, years later, would actually go over to my folks' house. Eventually we got one of our own, but television, you know, is a fairly recent invention. But our kids grow up today, and they take it for granted. You can take almost anything for granted. A human being can adapt and become accustomed and adjusted to the most phenomenal things very, very quickly. Eve didn't run away in fright when this creature talked to her any more than Adam and Eve ran away in fright when God talked to them. They had a relationship with God that was casual, natural, and normal. They were not fearful. Now, when Adam was created, God did not dress Adam in fur like he does orangutans and apes and uh, various other creatures. And when he took Adam's rib and fashioned Eve and paraded Eve before Adam, she was unclothed. And Adam said, wow. I imagine, or the Hebrew equivalent of, wow, whatever that might have been. And they were utterly unashamed. How many mothers have seen little children toddling out into the street absolutely bare naked? Because a little kid, one, one and a half, is utterly unaware that they are naked. They're unashamed. They don't care. We know that as parents rearing our children because they're innocent. They don't attach any dirty, evil connotation to the human body when they're one, one and a half or two. And Adam and Eve had that kind of innocent, childlike freshness of mind. They were neutral toward God, equally willing to listen to the serpent or the nakash or God. Now God said of all these trees, hundreds of them, look at them, dates and nuts and figs and fruits and everything you could imagine, as far as they could see in this garden that was burdened with the branches heavy laden with everything from bananas to apples and oranges, you name it, it was all there. You can have anything you want, but there's one tree in the midst of the garden that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and of that you shall not eat, for in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. That was not frightening or forbidding knowledge. It was merely information. Didn't turn them off. They thought, oh, that's wonderful. We get all this food, but there's one exception we've got to be careful about. The devil comes along and talks to Eve, and she, like many housewives since, didn't immediately slam the door in the face of the salesman and say, no thanks, I'm not buying. She thought, I better at least hear him out. I want to be polite. Wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So when he said, as God told you, you got to starve to death, right? Here's all his fruit, far as you can see, and God said you can't have a thing to eat. Isn't that what he said? He said, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, that was a blatant lie, and he knew it. But the woman thought, I better straighten this salesman out. i got to straighten him out. He doesn't understand. No, God didn't say that. We can eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And then came the basis of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Satan the devil said, You shall not surely die. In the Spanish it is masabidios. God knows more. God knows better. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And you will see things. You'll acquire knowledge. You'll have a point of view that is to be desired. 
and you'll be like God is, as God's, knowing good and evil. Ooh, evil, what's that? Sounds interesting. I want to know what that is. Now, I'm not of that opinion. I think just because it floats by in the sewer, Mrs. McGillicuddy doesn't need to see it. I don't, I don't have the opinion that because it floats by in the gutter, you need to put it in a clear package wrapper and take it inside and show it to her, like they seem to think in Hollywood and on television. But the devil, he thinks we need to see all that stuff. So if it's evil, if it's rotten, if it's a, what they call now the modern genre, you know, is splatter movie. You know what that is? That's the modern language in Hollywood for the kind of movies you get to see on television, where they take all kinds of stuff, red paint, blue paint, and maybe some cat's guts, you know, and in slow motion throw it against the wall, just as they show a guy being blown apart with a shotgun. And you get to sit there and enjoy it. I can't stand it. When I'm sitting there around, we have the movie channels at home, and, you know, you have the little automatic thing that just goes through the channels real quick. I've seen scenes that even in one second are so imprinted in my mind that I can be revulsed and, and repulsed and made sick by just that quick photograph my mind took of an auger without any hands available, slowly piercing some guy's chest and blood flying in all directions and him just going, ah! I'll never forget it. And it lasted less than one full second, what I had to see on TV. There it is. Enjoy. More of that later, whether or not that is enjoyable. Oh, evil. We can, we can find out about evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food. She looked at it. Good-looking fruit. Hmm. And then it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired, to make one wise. So she thought about that concept. She reasoned. And she took it and gave to her husband, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened. Well, what, have they been wandering around blind? It says before then that she looked so she was able to see. And her husband was standing there beside him, beside her, and she could see him too. You mean they were blind before? No, it isn't what it means at all, does it? It means that they now saw things differently. There was a game years and years ago they played way back when my uncle was in high school, and he's long since dead. And it was called, well, I don't even think I'll pass it on to you. I'll just say this. It was a, a clever little statement you made, and you could read a road sign and then make that statement, and it would take a road sign and give it a dirty connotation. I'm not even going to pass it on to you because it's not worth it. But I'll never forget it because it was just one method by showing that a human being can take the most beautiful day and the most upbeat, you know, nice, thing that just as pure as the driven snow and put a dirty connotation on it if he wants to. And oftentimes he does. So the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Well, they'd been naked all this time, but now all of a sudden it was ugly. And it has been ever since. Augustine saw to that. Churchmen have seen to that. The Roman Catholic Church has seen to that. Even the old Greek statues were disfigured, and in the Vatican Museum, when you go to see the Greek statues, they're not the same as in some of the other museums in Italy. The museums in Italy, and I won't go into great detail, because even today, in the carnal mind, that is an embarrassing subject, the human body. But they knocked off the offensive parts and replaced them with nice little fig leaves in the Vatican Museum. Catholic Church wants to be holy. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons to cover up what suddenly was embarrassing, nasty, and evil. 
And out of this grows the concept that the first sin was the sin of physical sexual intercourse. When God had said, be fruitful and multiply the earth, and says in the book of Hebrews that the marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled, and that marriage is the very type of the family of God. Now they saw something dirty, something evil. They heard the voice of the eternal God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the eternal God among the tree of the garden. Now, all of a sudden, they didn't want God coming upon them. Why? You know, when I was a kid, I remember the most miserable day I ever spent. I forget what it was I did. I know it was bad, very, very bad. So bad that my mom said, young man, you march straight in there to your bedroom and you get in bed, and I'm going to tell your dad what you did when you get home. Now, I don't know if it was 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock when I was marched into the bedroom to get in bed, but I'll guarantee you the hours that lapsed between then and my dad's heavy footfall coming down that hallway were an eternity, an eternity, interminable hours. I was scared to death. I was sitting there just trembling with fear. The anticipation and the feeling of guilt and the expectancy that I was going to have to look into my dad's eyes and have mom stand there and tell him what I had done was just really hurting me badly. Well, Adam and Eve felt nasty. They felt guilty. They had, A, allowed that fruit and the desire for the knowledge to get between them and God. Thus, they had actually committed idolatry. She had coveted or lusted that fruit, thus breaking the Tenth Commandment. She'd reached out and stolen it when it wasn't hers, breaking the commandment against stealing. She had disobeyed her only parent, breaking that commandment, breaking four of them directly, and James writes, if you break one, you're guilty of all, and they knew that they'd gone directly against God's explicit instructions, and they felt nasty and dirty and evil. I probably heard the first dirty joke you heard. I'm not going to compare notes, but I'll bet it was the same one. Dirty words about a dirty little kid in school. First dirty joke I ever heard, I remembered exactly where I was. I was standing one block from our house where the bus came. We had to walk down to the bus, and I'd gone ahead of my mom, and she was coming along behind. And I got up there, and there were some other little kids there. And one of these older kids came up to me and told me that joke. And I laughed uproariously. And then here came my mother. And my cheeks got red. My ears were burning. I was as uncomfortable as I've about ever been. I wanted to find a hole to go hide in. My mom came up and looked at me, took one look, and said, Teddy, what's wrong? Oh, nothing, Mom. Well, something's wrong. What's bothering you? Well, of course, then I lied. Nothing's bothering me. Instead of telling her the joke the kid had told me, I was embarrassed to death. Here came my mother, who was probably, you know, me, well, we all ought to think the same things about our mom, but mine was one of the finest that ever lived, and a real Christian woman, and I believe that. I know that. But I'll tell you what, morally, my mom was triple-A, top, top of the heap, tremendously moral woman. And I knew that, and that standard that she set, and what she stood for, and here's this dirty little kid standing here. Now, all of a sudden, I'm sullied. I'm not a clean little kid, freshly washed with white socks and jeans, waiting for the bus to go downtown to go shopping with my mom. I'm a dirty little clod standing there with corruption hanging on me because a dirty little kid had told me a filthy joke. I was miserable. I can understand the way Adam and Eve felt. Here was a voice. It was God. Adam, where are you? It was God. It should not have been 
a voice that bothered them at all. But all of a sudden they felt dirty, afraid. And they did what? They hid. Now who hid first from whom? We have this plaintive cry. If you have a God, show him to me. If we believe in God, why can't we see him? Wouldn't it be nice to see God on a daily basis? Well, let's go ahead to the book of Exodus right quickly, to the 19th chapter, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Let me remind you, as we turn to that, of all of the things that mankind saw. What Moses saw very first time was a burning bush. Quickly, in your mind, recall all of those events. He went to the bush, it was burning, but it wasn't consumed. He heard a voice, take your shoes off, it's holy ground. And he did. From that time on, he saw one fabulous miracle after another. Moses said, but God, I can't go speak as a talk to them, because I got this terrible problem, I stutter, you see. And God said, don't worry, I'll send Aaron, and he will be your mouth. He will be your spokesman. Do you know that every word you read in Deuteronomy, which are the orations, was something that Aaron spoke? Moses was a terrible speaker. He was tongue-tied. He had a terrible stuttering problem. And because he felt inadequate, God said, see that staff in your hand, your walking stick you've been trudging up and down all these mountains with? Cast it down. He did, and whoop, huge big snake, a serpent. And it just amazed him. He said, well, take it up by the tail. He did, and instantly it was his staff again. Now, wouldn't you love to have something like that? Maybe on a daily basis, if I could just grab the microphone, toss it in the lap of the first two ladies down here, and suddenly it's a snake. Wouldn't that be fun? Uh, I'm not talking about snake handling, but, I mean, wouldn't you like to see a miracle like that? People love miracles. That's why we like magicians. David Copperfield. We like to go to these shows and see things like people sawn in half. They always have to have something evil, you know, sawing somebody in half. Then they take the two boxes, and you know there are two contortionists in there, but in one sense you wonder, did he really do that? Saw that person in half? It sure looks like it. I don't want to see that, but people want miracles. Well, Moses was curious, and so eventually, when he's at Sinai, after all of these great events had occurred, the Israelites had seen every one of these plagues fall upon Goshen. They had seen frogs piled about as high as the hip of a tall horse. They'd seen the river turn to blood until it became like black pudding and was rotting and stinking, so they couldn't stand the stench. They saw the dust turn to lice. They saw big boils with huge pus pockets burst out on all the cattle, but not a one of their cattle. Their homes were spared. They saw one gigantic plague fall upon the Egyptians until the economic back of that greatest nation of all time was broken. Then what did they see? They heard the wails that night as they painted the doorposts and the lintels of their homes with the blood of a lamb. And as I said before at the Passover time, that was not a religious ceremony. That was a desperate life and death necessity. They either painted the blood on those doors or they died. And if Martha said, Henry, are you sure you got enough blood on there? Go check real quick before sun falls because I want to make sure there's plenty of blood. We want the death angel to see it. It was a necessity to spare their lives. But they heard the wail, just like a cacophony, a cacophony I should say, of sound, all over Egypt where thousands of people were wailing and moaning and weeping because... They're aged, whether they were 90 or 9, didn't matter. If it was the firstborn of that family, he died that night. Then what did they see? 
a gigantic cloud by day and a huge, big, folding, boiling light by night that led them out into the wilderness until they came to a valley, and before them was the Red Sea, and behind them the next morning came a dust cloud that signified Pharaoh's army. There were perhaps three million Israelites and perhaps a couple of hundred thousand or more men on chariots and horses that were armed, and the Israelites had no arms to speak of. They knew they couldn't fight them. These were experienced soldiers. And now what do they see? Moses lifts up his rod, and they actually see the waters begin to flow up on one side. Maybe here and there a shark poked his head out and said, oops, and went back in. And they walked through dry shod. And then what did they see when they got to the other side with the entire army completely drowned as the waters came crashing together? Would you like to see a miracle? They saw them. One after another, gigantic miracles, unbelievable things. And they were there and they experienced it. And immediately they came to the waters of Meribah, and because they were bitter and acidic, they began to murmur. And after that time, the place was named the waters of murmuring and of all sorts of controversy. Now notice what Moses got to see. Finally, he is up in a cleft of the rock, by the, right at the top of the mountain, and he is so overcome with curiosity, he says, Show me thy way. And God said, All right, if you get in that crack of the rock over there, I'll put my hand over you. And he was speaking to him out of a thick fog, like a cloud. All Moses heard was a voice. And who was this person with whom he was dealing? Read John the first chapter and Hebrews the first chapter. It is the one who was called the Word. By him was everything made that was made, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the Word is, is the individual, the member of the God family, who became the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the Christ of the New Testament. That's proved in the Bible by two whole chapters of the Bible, as, many as, uh, as well as many other references. So he said, and I will pass by you, and when I do, I'll remove my hand for a moment so that you can see me. And Moses must have been just absolutely goose-pimply when he saw the rear part of a man, the back part, shoulder, back, legs of a man disappearing for just one moment and realized why he looks like a man. Moses got to see that much because he said, No man can look on my face and live. No man can look on God. But what a bolster for Moses' faith, you might say. Well, what about the people? Look at this. This is fascinating in the 19th chapter in verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and I won't read all of the areas where they went, but Moses reminded them, you shall say this, God said, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you'll be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation, a kingdom of teachers, of educators, of priests who possess the knowledge that is so vital not only to salvation, but to all of the other knowledge he gave them about diet and health and cleanliness and keeping their camp clean and everything that was necessary to the kind of a life that everybody wants. A holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Moses came and called the elders, repeated every bit of it, and they together said, verse 8, all that the Eternal has spoken we will do. And so there was the acceptance of the old covenant based upon physical promises 
material blessings for a physical lifespan. And Moses returned the words of the people to the Eternal. Now, God said, I'm going to come unto you in a thick cloud that the people may hear. I'm going to give them this much. I'll talk with you and let them overhear the conversation. And Moses told the words of the people to the Eternal. And the Eternal said to Moses, Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Interesting, isn't it? This comment has been brought up in passing to those who attend church to appear before God. And I couldn't help but in many, many years ago comment that if someone knew then Governor Reagan was going to come to their home, you'd have a frantic housewife. And what they would be doing if they thought the governor and his entourage were going to visit in their home. Or if it's the boss for whom you work. You know, people can really get busy and think about dressing up to go to a Chamber of Commerce banquet. I'm just saying this in passing, but it's interesting here that God said, not one of you is going to appear before me in the same skivvy shirt you wore yesterday. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying that God says when you appear before him, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. It doesn't say be rich. It doesn't say wear a suit and a tie. It says be clean. And... Be ready against the third day, for the third day the Eternal will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. But you set bounds, and don't let them touch the mountain, because whoever touches it will surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch it. And he says, Even a beast shall not live if they touch that mountain. Verse 13. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. Moses went down and told them all of that. And then they began to hear something. Verse 16. On the third day in the morning, there were thunders. Now, you know, a violent thunderstorm whose top reaches to 40-some thousand feet is a frightening and an awesome thing. And we've had a lot of that in East Texas recently, including some tornadoes that have touched down in South Tyler and down here in White House and all around, down here in Jacksonville. And all of us know what a thunderstorm is like. It's not very exciting, is it? Well, it's exciting, but in a very negative way. It can be very frightening, awesome, if you would. And the crack of thunder, when it's very, very close, can just about make you jump out of your skin. But even when it's rumbling around in the distance and echoing off the clouds, it can sound ominous and threatening and powerful. Well, they heard that, thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. But it wasn't raining. This was merely a manifestation of God's power. And the voice of the trumpet, there wasn't any trumpeter, but just the voice of a trumpet, like a staccato call of alarm. And they kept hearing this. These were angels, apparently, or a miraculous sound that God simply created. But by some method, they heard a sound of a trumpet, so that the people in the camp trembled, as you and I would have had we been there. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at another part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Eternal descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder until you about had to put your fingers in your ear, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Eternal came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Eternal called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses only Nobody else could come near that peak of that mountain. Moses went up. And the Eternal said, Charge the people that they break not through unto the Eternal to gaze. 
Maybe some of them were curious, but it seems that they became afraid instead, and they removed far off. Now you see the Ten Commandments given. God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and continued to orate, and then gave him those tables written with the finger of God. Verse 18 of that chapter, The people saw the thunderings and the lightnings, the noise of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Who first hid from whom? Adam and Eve hid from God. Now the people are there seeing the most powerful demonstration and manifestation of God's presence. And yet they'd already been treated to these fantastic plagues, to the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's army. For 40 years they wandered later on in the wilderness, and I'll tell you about that in just a moment. But now they have an opportunity to be right on the mountain and practically overhear the voice of God talking with Moses. But it was an angelic voice, no doubt, because it was not the voice of the Father. We know that. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, for God has come to test you, to try or to prove you, that your, that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. That's for your good as a deterrent against sin, as a reminder. God is God. He's awfully big. He's awfully powerful. He is eternal. He has x-ray vision. He's able to see you wherever you are. His eyes are not limited by darkness. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil, the Bible says. Their feet run to iniquity, the Bible says. But God sees. He beholds all. And they felt just like I felt when I heard my very first rotten joke. They felt guilty, they felt defiled, they felt unworthy, they didn't want God to burst upon them, they wanted to be far away, as far away as they could get. Let's have an intermediary. It's okay, let Moses talk, meaning Aaron, standing there and trying to fathom what Aaron was stuttering about. And then we'll hear the word. So actually they were sort of getting it third hand. Now, I could then give you a lot of other examples, but let me just remind you right quickly that all during the time of the judges, and Moses was the first of the judges who went to Jethro's advice. Jethro said, you need to get other people to hear all the long lines of those that are bickering and arguing and to try to give the judgments of the law and to settle disputes between families and about landmarks and inheritances and cattle and so on. And so, a system beginning with Joshua, who was the first of the judges following Moses, was put in place. And for many, many years in the promised land, one after another of those judges was hearing God in visions or directly with the voice of an angel and conveying God's word to the people until the days of Samuel. And then they said, we want a king. And Samuel was so distraught. And God said, Samuel, they are not rejecting you, but they are rejecting me. You show them the kind of a king they're going to have. He will tax them. He will conscript their sons into his army. He'll take away your sheep and your cattle. He'll take away your land. Sure, he's tall and he's handsome and standing head and shoulders over every other man in the realm. And his name is Saul, the destroyer. And you'd love to be out there with him at the head of the army. It's not you, Samuel, they are rejecting, but me, God said. But you let him have a king. So now they removed one more step away from God. Earlier, they'd actually heard the voice of God in the distance and seen his great power. They removed, they said, let Moses be the spokesman. And not a one of that generation went into the promised land, but the kids did, the younger generation did under Joshua. 
Now, I want to tell you something. If you had been an Israelite during that day, would you have done it differently? If for 40 solid years you went out and gathered manna, and every day it rained a mysterious substance like some kind of a honey cracker that fell upon the ground that you could fix in any number of dozens of ways, and it would have different tastes like coriander seed and honey and so on, depending upon how you fixed it. And if you noticed after about the first seven years and the first 2,947 miles that your shoes hadn't worn out. But more than that, every time the sun went down and you looked over there at the tent where the Levites were in the tabernacle, you saw this huge, swirling, gigantic column, maybe three or four hundred feet in the air, of fire every night. And every day when the sun came up, you saw this huge black cloud with flames flickering out of it, like an oil refinery burning. Every day. Forty long years. And when they were about to dismantle it and were given orders with a booming voice and they were taking apart the staves and all the supports and taking the tent and rolling it up, the cloud went up a little way. And then it just swirled along and marched out ahead of them and showed them where to go. And the Levites put the canvas and all the things on their shoulders and followed the cloud. Every day. I don't see things like that, do you? I don't get to see miracles every day, do you? Are you aware every day of the closeness of God? Are you made aware every single day of the incredible power of God? No, you're not. To most people, God is in the furthest black hole of the farthest part of the universe, the other side of something in the dimmest reach of the Hubble Space Telescope. They tell us how fast light travels through the universe. We know, most people in their carnal minds, that God doesn't travel to the universe anywhere near that fast. Because they tell us that the light that we're seeing from a little flickering star out there, so many billions of light years away, is such that that star could have exploded and disappeared billions of years ago, and we wouldn't know it. I'm not sure I believe that, by the way, because I'm not sure that they know exactly how fast light travels in the complete vacuum of space, even though there's a tremendous amount of knowledge about radio communication and the travel of light between here and the moon. They know the exact lapse of seconds between communication and a spacecraft that is going out the other side of this universe. I should say solar system, pardon me, but it's already left the solar system, so perhaps they're accurate. But to most people, their concept on a daily basis is God has gone way off somewhere Somewhere there's a God. Somewhere. What if you had seen Christ? What if you'd lived with him for three and one half years? Philip saw Christ. Let's turn to John 14 right quickly. John 14 in the Gospel of John. And verse 10. Well, a little before that, I want to read up to it. Philip said unto him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will suffice us. Now, see, he'd seen all the miracles of Christ. Think about it for a minute. He'd seen water changed into wine. He had seen Peter go out and catch a fish and pull a gold coin out of its mouth to pay taxes. He had seen blind men suddenly seeing and saying, I see trees or men like trees walking, and see Christ sigh and actually anoint a clay 
and put it on the eyes of a blind man and then see him see. He'd actually seen a man with a withered hand and have that hand just grow out right in front of his eyes. He had seen deaf people who had never heard suddenly begin to hear. He had actually seen Lazarus walk out of a tomb when he'd been dead four days and four nights. He'd seen fabulous miracles and had been treated to it and to the wit, to the incredible knowledge, to the vast store of information, to the grace and the beauty of the character and personality of Jesus Christ for all of this period of time. And yet he said, just one more curiosity, Lord. Show us the Father, and that'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me? Philip was with Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, have I not seen Christ? Have you been with me all this time, and yet have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say then, show us the Father? Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Muse for a moment about those disbelieving, carnal-minded, fearful disciples, who when they saw the beating of Jesus taking place, as Peter did from the courtyard when he wanted to get into the fire, but the gate was locked, and the girl named Rhoda was there, and he was banging on the door. He saw the lights dimly. He heard the smacking sounds as he saw over there inside a building, a stooped figure surrounded by a lot of hooting, jeering antagonists who were beating Jesus, spitting on him, jamming a crown of thorns on his head with blood streaming down, smacking him when he was blindfolded. Who was it, prophet? Who hit you that time? Oh, I remember you. You were one of those who were with him. And he took God's name in vain and probably threw the word damn around a little bit in that language at that time. A man who had seen water change to wine. A man who had said, can I walk on water with you? A man who had seen Lazarus come out of a tomb. All those great miracles. And yet, he said, I don't know who he is. I don't know the man. And then later on, of course, went out and wept when he knew what he had done. We like to think if we could see God, if we could see miracles, we would be better. Romans, the first chapter, it shows how there is no excuse. I'll just remind you of this and won't take time to read it all because it's rather a lengthy passage. But here's where God says, that which may be known of him is revealed even unto the pagan philosophers and anybody else who has the intelligence to look. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold back, as it should read, katabolo is the Greek, who hold back the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is evident or manifest in them or to them, for God has shown it to them. Now, most of you don't usually pick up an encyclopedia and study the article air. But if you should, you would find out that air extends up for hundreds of miles above the earth but when you get above the troposphere and you get clear up into the upper atmosphere, there's still one more mantle of air where very few molecules, molecules of air exist, but which is a part of the protection where the aurora borealis is formed. And that by analogy, all of this air, which has weight, which is composed of gases, and which you are now subsisting on and are breathing as you sit there, is composed of gases, most of which are very, very rare, but the combination of oxygen and carbon dioxide 
is the largest percentage of this substance we call air, which is material, not spiritual. It doesn't exist in space. It is not on the moon. There's no air there, just here. And the air on this earth is thinner than the finish of lacquer on a desk-sized globe. This delicate ecosphere, as Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. And like a fish in the sea that is in a huge big sea filled with water, so the earth is filled with a sea of air. And as fish swim in the air, so we, in the water I should say, and take water, air out of the water with their gills, so we walk in a, a huge sea of air, as it were. You can wave your hand like that and you can feel air. We know that it will hold a huge 747 in the air by lift overcoming drag with propulsion of jet engines. So we're all aware of that, and I won't deviate into that to tell you all about it. Are you aware that air is real? Do you believe in air? I think you do. Do you believe in electricity? You can't see it. You can only see what it does. You can see it coming through and heating a filament, but you can't see the electricity. You can feel it. It's a current, isn't it? It just shocked the daylights out of you. My wife and I have some kind of a little switch on our fan that if you're leaning against the stove and you happen to touch it, it'll establish a current and you look like a chrysanthemum. Your hair goes straight out. And it just shocks you, like plugging your finger into the wall socket. I believe in electricity, but I can't see it. Do you believe in radio? Yes, but you can't see the radio waves. Do you believe in energy? Do you believe in inertia? Do you believe in gravity? This is gravity. You can't see what pulls that book down. But those folks 8,000 miles through there on the other side of the earth, it would happen the other direction. Their book would be pulled up toward B. They think they're on the top of the earth. They should know better. We are. Right? Do you believe in these things you can't see? Forces and energies? God says the invisible things, even his eternal power and Godhead, verse 20, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. You're one of the things that are made. Your body, your bloodstream, if you study it, and you know all about red and white blood corpuscles and other blood cells and things that are carried in your bloodstream, Little antibodies can be built years and years ago when you were a child and can actually protect you against disease. If you study the rods and cones and the iris, the way a human eye focuses and develops and the way it works. If you study the human hearing mechanism, the inner and the outer ear, and look at diagrams of it. As David prayed, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now to the bottom line. Why does God hide himself? God says in Isaiah 59 this. There's a great deal about it in Isaiah, and I won't take a great deal of time to explain it. But Isaiah, the 59th chapter, in verse 1, Behold, the Eternal's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. That's what got in the way of Adam and Eve and God. Their sin. That's what set up the barrier. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. What if you were the father and mother of a beautiful little girl who grew up to be about 17, ran away, and became a street person? 
And about ten years later, you were fortunate with all of your attempts through police agencies and private detectives and little shopping bags of the pitiful pictures, have you seen this girl? And you went to Los Angeles. And there in a wretched, sleazy, kind of a hippie's pad was your daughter with all sorts of needle marks on both arms, her hair in a mat of filth, couple of her front teeth missing, having just finished the third man of the nine waiting in line in this prostitution house in which she is living, surrounded by a lot of idiots with tattoos all over them with red or black jackets of a motorcycle gang. And there is your beloved daughter. Would you want to stand there while she says, Mom and Dad, I'm busy, I've only got four more, and watch? You know, oftentimes my wife and I will have something come by on the television screen. The other day they were doing a newscast, and it, I knew where it was going, and it showed, it actually showed the woman and I think a child come to the window of a tall building. And I, I heard kind of out of the side, you know, corner of my ear, I thought, uh-oh, and I got rid of it real quick, just as I was hearing what they were talking about. And those people had jumped out of that window. Now, I think they survived, but there was a picture years ago of a black woman and her daughter down in New Orleans in a hotel fire. And the photographer had caught those two poor wretched people, about the 11th or 12th story, just as they bailed out. I'll never forget the look of that little child on her face, on the way to her death. I didn't want to have to see that. I didn't want to have to see that. There are a lot of things in this world that I can't stand to look at. I can't stand it. Now, if there were something so wretched and so horrible that your child were doing, there are times and places that you absolutely could not stand to behold it, couldn't stand to look at it. Almighty God says that the human race is so laden with sin, they are so filthy, they are so ugly. They are so heinously guilty of the most insane crimes that he says, I can't bear to watch. I can't look at it because I'm holy. God is holy. He is gracious. He is kind. He is good. He is righteous. He doesn't want to look at all of that filth any more than you'd want to look at a 17-year-old daughter with a line of motorcycle gang characters waiting to ravish her body. Turn to John, the third chapter, in verse 19. This is what Jesus Christ says about it. He said, this is the condemnation. And that's exactly what it is. This is the condemnation. Here's the judgment. Here's where the guilt lies. Here's the responsibility. That light is come into the world in the form of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and his saving gospel. And men loved darkness rather than light. They think God doesn't see when the sun goes down. They think God doesn't see behind the barn or the back seat of a car in a drive-in movie. They think God doesn't see through closed doors. Behind closed doors, says the country western song. My baby does this and that behind closed doors. But God does see. But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, the last time you want God to appear to you is right in the midst of one of your dirtiest, most grievous sins. And the next to the last time when you want God to appear to you 
is the time when you're still able to remember that sin, and you're not really sure you've been forgiven. People don't want to see God because they know they're not able. They know they would die of fright. They know that they would simply perish, that they would crawl beneath whatever they could find and hide from him. Let us not issue forth the plaintive cry, why does God hide himself? Because by and large, day in and day out, we're not fit to look at. Now, in Jesus Christ, in and through him only, and by his grace only, and by Christ in us only, God can look into that little precious creature in Christ and see something good. But if Jesus Christ, walking in the flesh, could say to the young nobleman who said, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Turn around and say, standing there in the flesh because Christ could perspire, his feet could become dirty. He didn't mean character-wise. He said, Why callest thou me good? Because he was there using that term in its purest spiritual sense. If the Christ should say to a man, Why do you call me good? How much less can we ever call ourselves good? The only good and decent thing that can dwell inside of you, of you is Jesus Christ of Nazareth through his Spirit. Why does God hide himself? Because he can't bear to look. But John says, eventually, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And Job prayed, I know that someday in my flesh, I'm going to see God. I want to see him too.